saying yes to things, and I've mentioned before about saying yes to things in terms of those multiple hats, everything. If you agree that you can do something, you kind of know a general way of doing it, but you haven't worked out how to get there. You, you can sort of see that you can get to it. You just need to navigate your way there. Then just letting the crew just come up with a way of doing it. And it's amazing what you can achieve. Welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast, where we share the wisdom, knowledge and experience of leaders who've served in the military and then taken those hard-won leadership lessons into the corporate world. Hi, I'm your host, Martin Brooker. Looking forward to sharing with you the stories of their lived experiences, warts and all, from leading men and women in harm's way, all the way to the corporate boardroom and beyond. Let's get started. My guest today is Boris Novak, who served in the Royal Australian Air Force for 10 years as an electrical engineering officer, leading teams in the deployment of tactical communications to support deployed air operations for joint and combined forces. From an early stage in his career, it was clear that Boris was someone who liked to stretch himself and his team. It's no surprise that when he transitioned from the Air Force, it was to drive innovation in his own business, developing breakthrough capabilities in real-time analytics with big data and machine learning. Boris is a collaborator and he's currently working on several projects here in Australia and internationally, including hydrogen technology and industry advisor with the HunterNet Cooperative in Newcastle-Hunter Valley region. When he's not working, he's got passions for football, on the water, kite surfing or surfing, and on the land, hiking, or in the air as a pilot who enjoys aerobatics. What I loved about our conversation was the his definition of an innovation, change that adds value, how to keep good quality people, how that is the fulcrum of having real innovation, and our conversation about real and raw leadership, how we empower people, let them fall over without crucifying them. Let's get right in. Boris Novak, welcome to Frontline to Boardroom Podcast. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for making the time. Thanks, Martin. Good to be here. Yeah, excellent. So, look, the question I always ask people on the show is, how did you end up joining the military or, the, in your case, the Royal Australian Air Force? Uh, well, I, I really wanted to join. Uh, always, as a, as a kid, uh, wanted to join the military, probably like a lot of young boys back then, uh, to join as a pilot. And I'd have to say that life at home wasn't necessarily um, – I, I was keen to leave home as soon as I could. And I remember going to recruiting in Year 10 and the um, the RAF sergeant there told me I had rocks in my head when he looked at my school reports. He says, come back in a couple of years' time. He said, because then you, you, you should join as an officer. And I, I did that. I ended up getting a scholarship in year 12, and then I was accepted to uh, to the academy straight from school to do electrical engineering or electronics engineering. So were there leadership influences in your early life, whether it be prior to joining the Air Force or early military career? Uh, yeah, it's hard to say influences. I, I, I guess I used to like listening to my stepfather's stories of World War Two because he lived through that time. Uh, and I later learned my father as well, living through some hard times as well. But um, probably in terms of leadership influences, I liked reading about Douglas Barter um, mm-hmm. and uh, in particular that he was a fighter pilot as well. Just how, I mean, someone like that could really inspire the people around him to do really well, seemingly incredible things, um, particularly for someone that had one leg. And, and the fact that he 
you know, fought the bureaucracy to make his way back in as well. But also, I, I like science fiction, and a lot of the science fiction explores issues around technology and that. And um, it's interesting that Dune is now being rebooted on film, big screen. And um, I loved reading all the Dune books as a um, as a fifteen year old. And um, if you've ever read Dune, most of it is actually about leadership. Yeah, it's not something we would normally go to as a source for leadership, is it? No, no. But I find quite a lot of the science fiction books are really like. Um, quite often around that. I guess probably since then I've been very curious around Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, mm-hmm. what he managed to achieve at that time in terms of reform. Nelson Mandela and probably more, you know, contemporary sense, um, Angela Merkel. So you graduated out of the Defence Force Academy and obviously the Air Force College as well. Where did your early career take you and what did you end up doing in your military service? My informative years as an officer was probably not very Air Forcey. Um, there's often a joke about Air Force with us living life in hotels and whatnot. I chose a unit. I've never made those things. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's, there's probably a, a, an element of truth for that, uh, for the Air Force, but um, the unit that I was at, I actually spent much of my time with the Army, uh, with Brigade Headquarters on amphibious landings, for example, point of entry, airfield insertions, activating their bases that we have in Australia for um, communications because our unit was responsible for um, providing communications uh, electronics facilities in support of deployed air operations. Uh, and I was attached to combined forces and joint forces and um, and that. It was, a, it was a highly stressful environment, very operational, not really that much time to rest but also the, the demands of leadership were very, very, uh, very overt, very sort of unforgiving environment in terms of the people you led. There were high expectations and high stakes involved as well because the environments were what I'd describe as a combat environment. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and, and that said, it was highly satisfying. After that, it was a case of I, I was posted to a unit where it was much more of a systems engineering and support logistics role. So I ended up being um, the systems engineer that supported all of basically responsible for all of defences, airfield navigational aids and radars in a logistics and support sense. And I did that for a time before I discharged. So in that time in the Air Force, what were those leadership lessons for those experiences in those various roles? So there's probably a few little lessons that I learned. Uh, one is forgiveness is easier to obtain than permission, and that's quite a, a well-known military, I guess it's an axiom really, in, in the military because it's one thing just to go ahead and take action, and um, it's, it's a risky thing, but... But if it comes off, people will probably um, understand why he did it because sometimes uh, your ability to obtain permission isn't always inherent. So sometimes mm-hmm. you just have to go for it and hope that uh, what you do comes off. And even if it doesn't, sometimes you, you may be forgiven. The other one is don't run. It scares the troops. Right. <laughs> that was a really quite interesting lesson in that. Um, I, and I, I did see that and I also understood that in business as well. What that means is when there is potentially a crisis or something or emergency situation is do not present anything that might look like panic uh, mm-hmm. because that will spread like wildfire and so, and it will instill much more confidence if people understand that whoever's making decisions and taking action, that they're in good hands. 
The other lesson I learned, I guess, is that I guess on the whole that leaders are actually very generous people. They wear a lot of different hats, particularly in, in the military. I learned you, it's very rare if you didn't have another role aside from the core role that you posted to. You'll often wear one or two different other sort of roles and often be appointed those roles and it's an expectation that you'll do that. And I guess that sets up a, um, I guess a lifestyle where you kind of just expect to be busy mm-hmm. and just achieve all your things whilst um, – because you, you actually learn the art of delegation because, yeah, you just get busy. And I find even in uh, since leaving the military that, yeah, most of the, uh, the good leaders that I know are often seen volunteering their time all over the place. Uh, they, they fulfill many different roles uh, aside from their core role that they might be paid for or whatever. So what were those, some of those ancillary jobs that you had to take on as a junior officer? Uh, you, you may have been involved with uh, an officer in charge of certain accommodation blocks. I pursued my passion. I was in charge of um, uh, soccer or football okay. on, on the bases that I was at. Yep, so running a sports team as well. Yeah, um, and then you might have get, get involved with um, inter-service sport. So, you know, at a service level, um, across the whole service. Or there might be positions to support in terms of the mess, which is kind of like a social club almost, but mm-hmm. supporting the whole base that you're at. But even in a unit, you may have other roles like security officer uh, or other sorts of maybe roles related to that or WHS officer and things like that. So um, you do get used to sort of, I guess, fulfilling many different sort of roles or, or wearing hats, as we used to say it. Yeah. It goes to um, that broadening very early in a career, doesn't it, to stretching you very quickly around a whole bunch of things, stuff that you probably don't even know about or have any expertise in, yet you have to be the person responsible for that or the expert. That's correct. It really broadens your um your knowledge rather than sort of you, you can't stick your head in the sand as to what the rest of the service is about and other sorts of even vocations. You very quickly become adept at uh, assimilating information and orienting yourself very quickly to, I guess, different endeavours and specific small projects, for example, and your knowledge accordingly becomes a lot wider and your experience base as well and your connectivity to a wider social network beyond just your workplace as well. I think that's um, another element that probably isn't really even sort of considered in the military, but you understand later on that that's what's happened. Yeah. I can't help but think that that career brought in actually gives the opportunity to become confident in taking on something that you've never seen before or, or responding to and stepping into leadership more than perhaps you would have otherwise if you just got a clear job statement. Yeah, very much so. I guess your um, your attitude to unknowns is much less risk-averse to others and much more of a can-do attitude. And with that, you're quite happy to sort of take on other responsibilities and ones where people, <laughs> yeah, I've often been um, the one who was last to step back <laughs> and, and just take on something, you think, oh, yeah, I'll do that. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, but I, I think there's a lot of people, um, former military people are pretty much like that as well. 
So we know it doesn't go well all the time. What was some of the biggest lessons from your time in the military service that you look back and you go, I wish I'd done better or really stretched you as a leader? Yeah, so there's probably several times where there's probably a couple of elements to that. One of the things I learned, and it probably wasn't a lesson that anything went wrong in particular, but I learned that I guess through self-reflection and analysis that if I was forced into a position to um, send people under my command into harm's way, I realized that I could. And it took me some time to come to that conclusion. And it may seem counterintuitive for people that, well, if you're in the military, you know, you should do that. It's expected. Well, you do become, through adversity, you become, and share experience in adversity, you become very close to the people around you that you work with, uh, that you work for, and who you're responsible for in your command. So, in a sense, you become very close, and I, and I don't think it's inappropriate to say that you love them, and, and I mean that in the sincerest expression possible. So, you do ask yourself, wow, I, I do love these people. Am I capable of sending them on a mission where in an environment that's of such lethality that there's a high risk that they may come in harm's way. And um, I followed it through to conclusion that with society's expectation on us to do that, that there was an expectation that should be prosecuted. But also, I guess it's a respect for those people as well that they expected it. They, they were looking to you as the, the officer and the leader and, and they were expecting to be told to do that. They signed up for that. And that if someone had to do it, I'd probably preferred it to be me than some other one that probably they probably had less respect for. <laughs> um, but the lesson from that and, and probably relating to, you know, I guess, the title of these podcast series is that I relate that nowadays in the boardroom in that those that have directorships, particularly in the Australian context, you have a fiduciary obligation to the entity for which you're a board director of. That means that your decisions... Uh, are there for the well-being of, you know, the enduring well-being of that entity, which means it takes primacy over the people within that entity. And then going back to the military, well, the mission comes first. And if you have to achieve the mission, risking people, then that's what you're going to have to do. So in that sense, I think compared to people's lives, where it's people's livelihoods that are at stake, it's actually probably a little bit even more simpler in the corporate sense, because at least then people still have a degree of agency in which they can find the livelihoods. It's not their life, okay, that's at stake. It sounds like there's a bit of a tipping point then between the mission purpose of an organisation and also the people, whether it be their lives in the military or their livelihood in a corporate sense. How do you as a leader navigate that? Between the military and the, the corporate sense? I think the common theme to that is as absurd and counterintuitive as it may seem is most people actually like being told what to do. And I discovered that very early uh, as a young officer. Most people actually don't want leadership because leadership means being responsible for others, people's actions. Mm -hmm. And most people actually, they certainly don't want to be responsible for other people's actions when many people actually struggle being responsible for their own actions because they're quite happy and that's why they're quite happy to be told what to do because they can defer that sense of agency to someone else, particularly if they're embarking upon or, um, you know, doing an unsavory task. They know that it needs to be done, but they can blame someone else for the fact that they are doing it. 
I guess back to one question before, another lesson that I learned also is don't necessarily accept intelligence on face value. So um, be comfortable in questioning it and question the quality of it, okay? So there's always a degree of certainty or otherwise in anything you're being told and don't be seduced by the comfort of assumptions, I think you'll find that, uh, and this is especially true on a board, if you challenge assumptions, all of a sudden it opens up a whole raft of other opportunities in formulating strategy with whatever strategy it is you want, uh, and particularly for any kind of operational or, or tactical task, whatever the strategy is for each of those. Challenging assumptions open us a whole new world as to how to go about something. We, people call it outside of the box. You can call it whatever you want, but mm. just, just don't take it as a given with whatever information you're being told necessarily. Yeah. It must be important to create an environment where it's okay to challenge assumptions, I guess. That is another very good point. Something I learned very quickly from my first CEO was that do not allow anyone to become irreplaceable, and that's down the whole tree of command, um, you know, the entire chain of command. And what that means is growing those people, their own sense of responsibilities and leadership such that if anyone is knocked out within that chain, someone else can take their place, okay? The only way you can do that is allow people to grow, empower them, and that means allow them to take risks. I mean, you start off small with people. You wouldn't expect to... um, uh, give someone a, a, a task that involves a large risk of failure and and hope that they're going to win, win the lottery. You know, you're going to build them up in that sense. So um, having a culture where um, failure is not, uh, people aren't crucified for um, screwing up, it also plays into that encouraging them in a sort of unofficial manner that it's easier to get forgiveness than it is to get permission <laughs> as well. So that kind of yeah. plays into that. And we hear that a lot in the corporate world about, you know, encouraging failure. I, I don't think it's encouraging failure. It's just giving people a lot of leeway, you know, a lot of rope to go about deciding how to do something rather than sort yeah. of giving them mission rather than the execution necessarily. In some ways it's about having a go, isn't it? And accepting the fact that there's not just one way of doing something. Precisely. Because if you just have a micromanaged way of achieving a mission, it's very stifling as to the innovative means that some people might come up with to achieve that mission. Mm. And that first unit that I was in, I was very fortunate. There was a culture of innovation and, um, and it couldn't be in place without just giving people a bit of leeway. And that involved a lot of unofficial time of doing stuff you know, that people can learn and just tinker. And um, we were known for a technical innovation, but just also just being sneaky little bastards in, in getting the job done sometimes. Yeah. Which probably is a pretty good segue to the fact that when you transition from a full-time service in the Air Force, innovation and technology was a big part because you rather than going to a corporate job, you went down the entrepreneurial route and, and founded your own business. So I'd love to hear a bit more about that and and what you took from the military, but also what you found out in that business yourself. Well, we did. Uh, I started out as very much a sort of service-based business initially, but we really wanted it to be product-based because a product-based business means you have you, you're really not providing just a sort of a, I guess, someone to fill a seat somewhere. You're trying to come up with solutions that is the culmination of a team's effort 
rather than just one particular person. And that doesn't mean that you may not employ someone who's plays a you know protagonist sort of role, so to speak, in coming up with those innovations. But uh, yeah, so so coming up with a culture that could allow that, and we were very well known for. Um, uh, we had a lot of industry awards in terms of innovation and the, the IP was successfully sold to globally as well that we came up and we had some really world first sort of innovations around that old machine learning and uh, behavioral analysis sort of algorithms, which was different to how it first started. But there are a couple of things, again, from the military days that were expressed inside of that was that adversity was one thing. We were a small company. We weren't well-resourced. So people had to find just clever ways of, you know, coming up with a solution. And that meant just looking outside the square. We solved some stuff by looking at repurposing console game software, which was, you know, an industry first. But once you highlight it to others, they go, that's a no-brainer. How come others haven't done it? Well, they just hadn't seen the connection Another one is just, uh, you know, I mentioned adversity. And you can also increase that adversity by just having very aggressive timeframes as well. So, because of course, time is a resource. And so part of that is also having a can, can do attitude. So saying yes to things. And I've mentioned before about saying yes to things in terms of those multiple hats, everything. If you agree that you can do something, you kind of know a general way of doing it, but you haven't worked out how to get there. You, you can sort of see that you can get to it. You just need to navigate your way there. Then just letting the, the crew just come up with a way of doing it. And it's amazing what you can achieve. So, um, yeah, that, that was interesting. We had a really good culture and um, I th- think it's easy to take for granted the sorts of things you sort of intuitively put in place in an organisation. Entrepreneurs are always interested in trying to find a way in which to create that innovation culture. What are the things that you think actually help create that innovation culture in that business? Uh, well, the first thing is not be afraid of change because I, I, I love the very simple definition of innovation, which is change that adds value. So it can be anything, anything. So if someone uh, comes up with a great idea, then it, it's important to at least look at it and explore it and don't be put off by, I guess, the degree of inertia that needs to be overcome in order to implement that or to consider implementing it. And I guess that's the other thing is a way that you can do that is not to have so much inertia in the first place to be able to implement change. So a way of achieving that is what I would call sort of being able to have institutionalised processes but without bureaucratizing the whole system. And a way of doing that is to try and do what you can to recruit, hire, and keep really good quality people because that's that's your um, fulcrum, that's your base to help keep up the processes in terms of corporate knowledge and whatever. But it means that your processes can still exist, but they can be lighter or less uh, less intense, less depth than other organizations because having processes there is good for steady state sort of operations, what I call day-to-day, day job sort of stuff. But you don't want to go so far that you're trying to account for every kind of lowest common denominator. You need to allow people to have some degree to, to think still mm-hmm. and to be able to do that. Uh, so it's... 
it's a way of achieving what I call institutionalized organizational health, employing really good people, allowing them to do their job, try not to interfere, and, and you'll find that innovation will just occur by itself. Yeah. And that people will just get on with it and it'll keep going and it'll keep climbing and raising itself. And you can still have processes that still comply with a lot of the different standards and systems to, to achieve, you know, uh, third-party accredited certified systems, but they don't have to be in such a way that your organisation can't change, can't adapt, and uh, and don't be seduced to going down to one technology partner, for example. Um, you need to be flexible around a whole lot of things. Yeah, that is so important to actually keep quality people. What are the kind of things that you've seen that you've actually needed to do to ensure that those quality people stay in your organisation because they want to, not because they feel financially constrained to do so? So we often hear that, you know, people will hang around because it's not necessarily the money. Well, we, we, we try to sort of keep people satisfied money-wise anyway, but we were probably below market in terms of competing with some of the global companies in terms of what they paid, but people enjoyed what they were doing. They did have agency in their lives at work, in the workplace, and their efforts were recognised. We often hear that, you know, it's doesn't cost anything to recognise people. And and you can do that in a, in a variety of ways. And and one of the easiest things to do is just be genuinely interested in what they're doing. Doing yeah. the walk around sometimes, you know, at least a couple of times a week, just going around, what, what are you up to today? Oh, what are you doing? Oh, okay. And that's a good way of just getting a sort of a sense. It's, a, it's your own form of instrumentation on where things are at anyway. And, yeah, just genuinely being interested in what they're doing and you can even make a suggestion, oh, so-and-so over here is doing something there. Maybe you can talk to them about that. And you're not telling them what to do. You're just giving a quiet suggestion and that. So being interested without interfering, I think, is very important. You're a connector, aren't you, at the end of the day? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Connector and, and influencer as well sometimes. But in urgent situations, that definitely changes to much more directional style of leadership as well. And they expect that. So your ability to be able to speak to people and speak to a bunch of people, a group of people is probably quite important in leadership. Not all sort of uh, context needs it necessarily where uh, you can still have the influential leader still, you know, uh, achieving great successes. But sometimes you, you need that directional sort of style as well, particularly in those sorts of um, where you may have crises to deal with as well. Yeah. Once you exited uh, your business, you took on more sort of industry advisory roles and quite a big involvement in governance and strategic level leadership. What have been the lessons there for, do you think, for people, you know, when they've got to pay attention to governance and strategic leadership? Uh, yeah, governance, yeah, that's a it's a... Good one. Um, so when I finished up, I took some time off, but then I, I did go and uh, train up and I finally did a course that I should have done a long time ago when I was in business and that was the Australian Institute for Company Directors course. Quite an intense little course, actually hard to graduate with. But one of the key things uh, that it taught me, which was a much greater comprehension on fiduciary obligations that the board director has to the company and that provides absolute clarity as to where 
where your um, loyalties lie. I remember being in business and it being very, um, sometimes very ambiguous and almost uh, morally confusing as to what to do between, um, you know, the sense of the business and the people. Again, it's that problem that we had. Now, unlike what I did in my informative years as an officer and understanding that I could send people in harm's way, it was very difficult to um, make the decision to make people redundant and that. We did end up having to do that and, and, it, and it hurt like hell. And that was decision was made out of complete necessity, but it wasn't really out of necessity for the company as, as it relates to any kind of fiduciary obligation and understanding of that. Had we had that, it would have been much simpler, less painful, and we probably would have made a lot earlier as well. So in terms of governance and strategy, I, I would really recommend that and understand that um, if you are on the board, on a board, or if you are considering accepting a role on a board, you need to really be very clear of what your fiduciary obligations are. Because if you are not clear on that, you shouldn't accept the role. Yeah, it's uh, quite simple because you're going to be at some point you may be confronted with making those kinds of decisions that uh, you may have had a completely different moral stance on prior to that time. So it's almost a question of integrity, isn't it? Actually, knowing who you really are and knowing that actually in that role you're going to bring all of that and sort of that knowledge and wisdom that comes from understanding those fiduciary responsibilities as a director. It is, but in Australia, it also goes to the step further that you have a legal obligation. Yeah. <laughs> because if you yeah. start making decisions that favour, for example, uh, someone else over the obligations to the company, that may show preference in terms of a solvency situation as well. It's uh, And those legal liabilities reach back to directors personally now. It's quite, in, in a military sense, I would also say in terms of understanding what law orders to, to provide, understanding the nature between we, – we have seen it, you know, in terms of like war crimes and that understanding that you're giving a lawful order can be quite – can give you a lot of clarity in terms of those what may be um, morally ambiguous situations in the fog of war so understanding what the rules of engagement are and what the rules of uh, laws of armed conflict are is very important, I think, to avoid what might be characterised as a moral injury later on, which um, which can traumatise people that have been through that. Yeah. So you talked earlier a little bit about creating an environment where people are able to grow. What have been the resources that have helped you along the way that have contributed to your growth mindset, do you think? Yeah, okay. Um Probably, I think in a contemporary sense, I, I like, um, I guess I like the strictures of Patrick Lencioni uh, around organizational health and exploring what dysfunctions of management are. I, I like Patrick's um, sort of no nonsense, sort of quite easy to understand um, uh, concepts around organizational health when strategy, management, communication and culture come together and just make sense. But also understand the difficulty it takes to achieve that because, yes. you know, it, it's, a, it's a disciplined approach to achieving it and it's not, it's not complex. And I think that's where um, 
some organisations just expect there to be complexity around a lot of that, and um, it, it takes a lot of discipline. And also uh, some of the central tenets like of Simon Sinek's teachings, you know, particularly, you know, we hear about it now, the why, you know, understand the why. And that also plays back into Patrick Lencioni's uh, teachings there as well, which is, um, you know, understanding the, you know, in terms of a company, why we exist. You know? So that's quite, quite important as well. If you had somebody to come up to you and say, Boris, what's the, Best advice you can give me on how I lean into leadership today. What would you say? Well, oh, look, there's probably quite a few things. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll probably try and round them off. I think I've already said this before that I, I really genuinely think that people like being told what to do. Yeah, at least as a starting point. And they soon get over bad news because they accept that you just simply outlined the message to them, you know, and mm. <laughs> so you're the messenger. Because people can see what the situation is like. It's like uh, what we saw with COVID. People were expecting governments to take some stiff action. And they were actually quite annoyed when governments delayed taking that action. Mm. And that action then still was imposed. But then a, a lot of the time, the horse had bolted. So it had less efficacy in that regard. I think it's also much better to have what I would call confronting difficult conversations with people than to find solutions that look to avoid them. And, you know, people will prefer to have that honesty than being dishonest with them. And dishonesty also includes not having those conversations with them. And I think with that, we hear a lot about resilience. I think resilience can only be grown through honesty, really, at the end of the yeah. day. One of the other things, though, in terms of advice is I, I, I often found it lonely at the top <laughs> you, you will often feel like you're the only one so nowadays i suggest to people go find a mentor or at mm. least join a network of like-minded people that um, can sometimes share in your frustrations <laughs> um, because it can be often frustrating and like i say it can be very lonely i think people are doing their best most of the time if not all the time even if it's not their personal best so it's just their personal best that they can muster at the time. So try not to be too critical of people. So in that, you know, it's this is an old, you know, maxim of leadership is set the example and be true to that. Mm. But I think it's also important to balance that with not everyone wants to be a leader. So it's the actions that you want to sort of set the example on and the behaviours really. Somebody once said to me that um, leadership's not given, it's taken. It's like people step in and take leadership rather than, you know, you demanding that they take it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. And and I was going to say, like, on that balancing sort of thing is that people can like you without wanting to be like you. So, you know, if you might model certain behaviours, it's good if the sort of core of that goes through, but don't try and sort of create someone else in your own image, if you know what I mean. But yeah. on that, though, I think it's important to um, really recognise that being likeable is vastly um, will, will vastly help your leadership, but leadership must take primacy over likership, okay? So being likeable is totally different to being liked, okay? And so on that also, it's a hard one to find sometimes. So being respectful to people is not the same as going out of your way to be nice to them. Um, we don't have to be politically correct for, you know, not knowing why. 
Another one around uh, some advice is you don't have to be on message all the time. Just be genuinely interested in people, but without interfering with them, just let them do their jobs. And I think we've already sort of talked about it, but if you wish to really empower people, just you need to be able to let them fall over without crucifying them. So in a way you can try and do that is just start by giving them small risks and then build them up into larger risks because it's just going to be stupid to begin with a large risk empowerment, hoping, you know, that they'll win the lottery for success. um, I mean, you (laughs) might get away with it, but... You know, the next time you go to do it, they might not come off. So, um, yeah. Well, Boris, it's been great to have you on the podcast. We're going to finish up with the rapid fire questions. Um, so, with these, we're, I'm going to give you a sentence and there'll be a blank in there. I just want you to fill in the word. And uh, as I say, rapid fire questions doesn't mean that they have to be rapid fire answers. So, okay. if you feel like, feel like you need to, if there's more to add, please do that. So, the first question leadership is blank. <laughs> Lonely. <laughs> um, what's your go-to book on leadership? Uh, look, at the end of the day, it is about leadership. I, I'd say The Advantage by Patrick Lencioni, probably because in a boardroom sense, ultimately what the CEO is becoming is like a chair of a board. So with his executive team, so his or her executive team are sort of like sort of coming together as almost like board directors in a tier of sort of meetings. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's a it's a very good one, I, I think, in, in terms of the context of the, 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 the podcast series. Yeah. I wish I had known blank earlier in my career. So I think in terms of my business career, yeah, I, I wish I'd known, uh, I, I had a, a greater grasp and comprehension of what fiduciary obligation mm-hmm. is. Yeah. earlier in my business career, I think that would have helped a lot. Yeah. You get a call from a team member, a crisis has just erupted in your organisation company. What are your first words to that person? Is everyone okay? Are you okay? And lastly, do you have a go-to quote that has been an influence or been influential on your leadership style or your choices and principles? Yeah, probably one I come back to um, every now and then for people is that Leadership is about doing the right thing and management is about doing things right. Yeah. Boris, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you being on the podcast today and um, we look forward to adding in the show notes some details about what you're doing now and, and how people can reach out to you. So, again, thank you. Thanks, Martin. Pleasure. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Frontline to Boardroom. So grateful that you could be with us. For more on how you can step up to leadership every day, be sure to visit us at martinbrooker.com where you can subscribe to the show to be notified every time an episode drops. And if you found value in this episode, we'd love it if you'd share it with a friend. Looking forward to being here with you next week. And remember, sometimes you need to drive it like you stole it.